All right, good morning. How are you? Hey, I hope you haven't gotten used to this miracle. You know what I mean? Like the miracle that we're here. I hope you haven't gotten used to it. I sometimes get used to it. I sometimes worry that I'm the swine that Jesus is throwing miraculous pearls in front of, and I'm just missing it. Just missing it. I actually had a, uh, an, unlikely, an unlikely rabbi on this, Einstein. Einstein uh, was famous for saying, there's two ways of looking at things. Either everything's a miracle or nothing is. I kind of think he's right. I kind of think he's right. But I thought maybe it'd be worth our time just to think about the miracle of this morning. I mean, I don't mean the technological miracle per se where the, the camera is taking all the sights and sounds and turning it into digital information, zeros and ones, and beaming up to a satellite and then down to people's living rooms where it will be replicated on their computer screens in the exact same sights and sounds. My voice is turning into digital information and then back into my voice. That's either a miracle or a witchcraft. I'm not sure, <laughs> right? I don't understand. It's crazy. But I'm not, that's not actually what I'm referring to. And, and, and certainly, it would be good to reflect on the idea of the miracle of life. Breath moving in and out of our lungs. Let it draw us into prayer. But that's actually not what I was thinking about. And, and maybe not even the sort of street-level miracle of the fact that we are here after a night game in the rainy morning. I mean, that's a bit of a, a street-level miracle of sorts, right? That's something. But I think maybe, maybe I'm most astonished this morning to think about the fact that we are here 6,000 miles away from rural Israel, worshiping a peasant day laborer. It makes no sense. How did it happen? It's like actually a miracle. It is. Ask any historian, agnostic or not, and they'll tell you, I don't know. I don't know how it is that you're sitting here in the beginning of September 2022 and worshiping that guy. I don't know how you've even heard of him. I don't know. And they'll come up with some, you know, best efforts, a thesis of sorts, and they'll say, well, here's maybe why Christianity flourished, maybe. And they might draw your attention to the fact that Christianity provided a heterogeneous community that was not possible elsewhere, where people of different ethnicities and, and, and people who had different status economically came together. Men and women coming together. Multi-generational worship happening. And they said, well, that's unique in history. Maybe people were attracted to it. I say, yeah, probably. I wonder what miracle made it possible for that to be true, right? Or, or they say, listen, you understand, uh, in the pagan world, uh, they used to expose children. Uh, if, the, if the child was born and it didn't seem useful to the family. If, if the child was of no use and the, and the dad picked up the child and said, well, this child has no use, they would just put the child outside and they'd say, listen, one of two things is going to happen. Either somebody will come along and say, I have a use for that child and take the child as a slave or a servant, or eventually the child will stop crying. Either way, let's wash our hands of the situation. Do you want to know who started coming along and picking up all those kids? It was Christians. It was Christians because they said, look, I see the image of God lying on this stoop. I see a miracle here. 
And God moved miraculously in them and said, not one of my child, not one of my children should slip through the cracks, grab a hold of this one. Actually, most of the time they were female. Because not only would the family say, this child is of no use, they would say, this child is a burden. Financially, how can we possibly, practically speaking, bring this child into our household? But Christians recognized that all people are made in the image of God. They universalized it. And they said, this one is the child of God I've got to have in my house. And, and it's amazing because after that, this miraculous chain of events, these children growing up in Christian households take on the faith themselves. And so all these women walking around who had been exposed but had been rescued by the church of God were now adult women of faith. And all these people coming along wanted to marry them. And they're like, well, I have this, I have this faith. And they're like, oh, well, me too. I, I like Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian. Let's get married. And so the faith grew. It just started. And so the historians would say, this is, this is uh, hard to explain. And I say, yeah, it's a miracle. It's a miracle how, how, how the, the roads of Rome didn't all lead to Rome. They led people home. They led people home to the heart of God. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about it. What a miracle. How beautiful. How beautiful. But there's a juxtaposition. There's a tension in my heart. Because I think you and I can often um, sit here and, 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 and just focus on the miracles. But there's this other thought that's it's working its way in. And here it is. I read about I read about this poll that was taken last year where 39% of Americans say that religion is ultimately a bad influence on society. That ultimately religion does harm. I feel heartbroken about that. How could it be that the faith that was rescuing children from the stoops and honoring women and, and, and elevating the poor and making a place for people, a home, for, how could that religion be bad? But actually, in the United States, that number is comparatively low. In the United Kingdom, it came back 61% of people said, ultimately, religion's just bad. It does damage. Australia, 63. You don't know who topped the list? Belgium. 69% of people in Belgium say religion is bad. And sometimes I look at the history of those countries and I say, I get it. I get it. If I'm trying to understand how could it be that this miraculous faith came to be part of a story where people could say, this is bad, I think it might be this. I think it might be that there are people in Christian history who found Christ beautiful and acted accordingly in worship of the one who is beautiful. And let's be honest, there were people in Christianity, in the history of the church the last 2,000 years, who merely found Jesus useful. And they used the name of our Lord in vain, which is actually what that phrase means. It doesn't mean uttering the name, it means misappropriating it 
leveraging it to your own ends. And that's what they did. Instead of finding Jesus beautiful, they found him merely useful. And here in this passage that we're going to study today, there's actually that same collision. There are people in this passage who think of human beings on a scale of either useful or not useful. Even human beings in this passage who thought of Jesus that way as useful to their ends or maybe ultimately not useful to their ends. And there is a person, a woman, in this passage who found Jesus beautiful. That collision is taking place here in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It's a collision of those who find Jesus beautiful and those who find him useful. And it makes all the difference. Historically, it has made all the difference. In my heart, it makes all the difference. And in this passage, it makes all, this, all the difference. This, this passage is actually really, really wonderful to, to sit and contemplate. Uh, when, we, when we started Mark, uh, I guess it was maybe 10 months ago or something, I, I don't know, what was it, eight months ago, I didn't give Mark very much credit. I thought he was like the JV gospel. I'm going to be honest, at this confession, it's a confession, and now I'm eating my words. This guy is awesome <laughs> at what he's doing. It's a miracle what he's doing. Like here in this one passage, 11 verses, he's got threads all coming together. One thread is this question, who is Jesus? And all along through Mark, that question has been reverberating, who is Jesus? And some people get it right, the demons get it right, throughout Mark, the, the poor, the blind, they say son of David. There's some people who get it right, but in this passage, there's one person who gets it right, who is Jesus? Secondly, another theme that's going to be coming together here in chapter 14 is the theme of what does it mean to be the Messiah? The Messiah must suffer, Jesus says. In fact, he has said it already three times at this point. And each time, everyone is very confused. Except for apparently one woman. She has been listening. She knows what it means, what it will mean in just a matter of days for Jesus to be the Messiah. She knows. And then the third theme that's coming together is the plots that have been growing against Jesus. In chapter 3, local teachers of the law said, we got to kill this guy. In chapter 11, they said it again. In chapter 12, they said it. And here, chapter 14, finally, it has risen to the level of the national leaders, the, the, the people in charge of the temple, the chief priests, are going to say it, and the the plot is going to be set in motion. These three themes are coming together in this collision, in, in, this, in this beautiful woven passage by Mark, who I should have given a lot more credit. So let's take a look at these themes coming together and people who are thinking of Jesus as merely useful and people who are thinking of Jesus as beautiful. And it makes all the difference. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Actually, this is the moment where we should go, oh, wait, Mark wants us to really pay attention. He's telling us about a timeline, which is not usually true for him. He doesn't usually bother with how long things took or how many days were in between. But here he says, hey, listen, Passover's coming. He wants our attention. He should have it by now, but he wants it. He really does. 
And so the Passover is two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Here's the truth. This is actually something they were known for. It's actually something they were known for. If you read Josephus, a first century historian, he'll say, oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. The, the chief priests definitely used power to put people under their thumb and they would bully them to the point of death if it was of use to them. They had a reputation. So here is this Jesus who in his most magisterial sermon has said, listen, I want you to love people who can't give you anything back. Listen, I want you to love enemies. Listen, uh, the best proof of love is laying down your life for your friends. Jesus, who's going to embody all of those deep and beautiful definitions of love, is apparently of no use to the chief priests. What a collision. What a stark dichotomy. What, what, what an absolute collision where on the one hand, there's, there's this beautiful Savior who says, love the people who can't even manage to love you back. And on the other hand, put to death those people who are no, of no use to you. Wow. So they're scheming, and they want to kill him. But they're very practical about it. They say, let's not do it now. There may, there may be a riot. Here's how practical they are. Why are they thinking about this? Why do they worry about a riot? Because it would do damage to their own reputations. It may even unseat them from power. Because at the Passover, Jerusalem swelled by two, three times as many people, and also more Roman soldiers. And the governor came from Caesarea to Jerusalem to make sure there was no trouble. This is self preservation when they want to put the death of Jesus off for a few days. They're preserving themselves. Now, it turns out that's actually a Markin sandwich. We've been seeing these all over the place. And there's another person who's going to betray Jesus at the end of the passage. He's going to decide, perhaps, that Jesus was no longer any use to him. He may be thinking, I need to preserve myself because this is going badly. Whatever it is that's happening in the heart of Judas he is the sandwich that is wrapped around this wonderful moment of worship where this woman will anoint Jesus, the King, the Messiah, and as Jesus says, prepare him for his death. His willingness to die for his friends, his willingness to die for his enemies is about to be put on display. While he was in Bethany reclining, at a table in this home of Simon the leper. Uh, it's very likely that Simon actually has been healed at this point. It's very unlikely that this group of people would be willing to share a meal with somebody who had active leprosy. So this seems to be somebody that Jesus has, has brought healing to, like we, like we were calling out just a few moments ago when we were talking about who is Jesus. Turns out you're right. He's the healer. He was the healer of Simon the leper. And here a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now, this jar, there's lots of discussion about what this jar is. Uh, on the one hand, I'd like to tell you, it's actually, generally speaking, kind of a status symbol. It, it, within the Jewish culture, it's like saying, look, look I, I, I'm, I'm at this level. 
uh, to give you sort of a comparison, if we were to travel a little bit west from Israel and head into Egypt, a comparative status symbol would be somebody who was wealthy enough to be mummified. Right? It took a lot of money to be able to collect enough of the paper and the cloth to be mummified. You had to have a certain status. So for, for her death or someone in her family's death to be rightly treated, she had to have been in a certain status. It's an identity here. An identity she's willing to pour out. An identity she's willing to let go of. Well, that's worship. That's worship. These schemers... They're missing it left and right, and here she is worshiping. This was perhaps meant for her own burial, but it seems that there's this collision of all the threads we talked about earlier. She's anointing Jesus. Now, it is true to say that this is something that would have been common in the sense of, uh, of any time you're, you're playing host. It's hospitable to anoint your guest with a little bit of oil, and certainly not a whole jar, and certainly not, not 100% nard, right? That's extravagant. It's extravagant. So something more than just hospitality is happening here. She seems to be recognizing his worth, recognizing his status, his, his identity. Who else do you anoint? Well, the king. The king. It's usually... A prestigious moment for, for, for the prophet of Israel to pull off. And here this woman is going to get to play the role. It, it's certainly true that the other gospel writers want us to think of it as an anointing of a king because that's when it happens in the book of John, for instance, in chapter 12. It's right before the triumphal entry. It's right before the ironic moment of saying Jesus is king happens in the crowd. There's no irony here. This is authenticity. She's been drawn into praise. She's ready to worship. I might like to say that she's been listening. Because the other thread, of course, is that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but the Messiah has to suffer. She's been listening. She's a disciple of his. Apparently the 12 don't yet have the ears to hear what Jesus has to say about it, but this one does. She's had the ears to hear that Jesus is both Messiah and King and will suffer for those he loves, which is actually everybody. But let's look. Let's look how other people react to this moment. She comes in and pours out extravagantly, handing her identity over to the King, pointing to his identity with all she has. And what do they say? Some of those present were saying indignantly to, number, to one another, why this waste of perfume? Actually, the, the word translated here, indignantly, or, or saying, is, is a word that's usually wor- used for horses, snorting. Uh, one translator says they sneered at her. And they say, very practically, could, couldn't this have been sold for more than a year's wages? We could have given this money to the poor. I, I want to tell you, that's a red flag right here. Not, not, the, not the fact that they want to give it to the poor, but their posture. Alarm bells ought to be ringing. Here's what I see. People who have sound doctrine but have not love, they are a clanging symbol sneering at a woman who's pointing to the identity of Jesus. 
And what are they so upset about? As I was praying through it, I could only land on this one idea. It came, came back to me over and over. They feel their identity is threatened. It makes sense in the flow of Mark. It's only recently that James and John have asked to be sitting very closely to, next to Jesus in, in heaven. And this woman has moved close to Jesus. How is this? This is the opposite posture. One ought to be celebrating that, that, that someone is being drawn home. And to them, somehow it's a threat to their identity. It tells me that they still merely find Jesus to be useful. He's a good, he's a good wingman. He's going to help them get where they want to go. He makes them feel good for the time being, or, or whatever it is, their identity is somehow threatened and they're sneering at her, these people with their clanging gong. And I think it's fascinating, they know exactly how much money this is. The other time this happens is at one of the feedings, Jesus says, hey, you should feed the poor. And they go, that would be 200 denarii. They know exactly. And they're not at all willing to lean into that. Their, their next question is not, so how are we going to do it? There, there's all this counting of the cost going on with the disciples, but there's zero payoff. There, there's zero uh, uh, moments where they say, and that's why I'm following you, Jesus. You're worthy of all of this. They haven't made this switch in their hearts. And Jesus knows it. He does all things well, and he reads this situation well. He says, leave her alone. Maybe you are steeped in a patriarchal society where women don't have access to the rabbi. Maybe you would like to put her in her place, but I've made a place for her. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing. Some say that the heart of this is Jesus is actually saying she's doing the very thing that you think she should do with the perfume. It should be given to the poor. Uh, rabbis taught, like, listen, here's what you should do. You should take care of the poor. There should be alms. There's got to be that. And, and, and you, should, you should take care of the, the teachers so that they have time to teach. And listen, you got to take care of the dead. Jesus is all three of those. He's a day laborer from Nazareth. He's a rabbi, and he's as good as dead. He says she's doing a beautiful thing. She's doing the very thing that you want to browbeat her about. You're missing it. She can do it. She's doing it. It's beautiful, actually, what she's doing. And then he says this, the poor you will always have with you. Now, some people read this, and they think of this as a dismissal of charity, which makes neither scriptural sense nor historical sense. Because I'm not being at all uh, hyperbolic when I say that Christians invented charity in the West. They were absolutely inspired by the movement of their Messiah to be charitable to the very last. Sometimes even selling themselves into slavery so they could buy the freedom of another. So it doesn't make sense historically, and it doesn't make sense scripturally. This is actually a quote. When Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, it's from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, you know what's being established in Deuteronomy chapter 15? is the system of jubilee. 
where debts will be canceled, where the poor will be raised up, and, and there will be a place made for them in society, where, where, where they will be restored. In fact, in verses uh, like four or five, right in the middle of this uh, passage that Jesus is referring to in Deuteronomy chapter 15, Yahweh says to his people, he says, resources won't ever be the issue. As long as you're obedient, there need not be any poor among you. But he gets to verse 11 in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and says, but you're always going to have the poor with you. For a lack of obedience, for, for a lack of a transformed heart, but I tell you what, not for a lack of resources. We could count the cost and we could figure that out right now. It's actually pretty simple math. You could look the church, the, the world over, and you could see what kind of resources the church the world over has. And in terms of being given to charitable causes, we're sitting at just under 2% giving. It's not a lack of resources, kids. It is that sometimes I am tempted to simply see Jesus as useful, just as useful as my bank account. But I need to find, like this woman found, that he is beautiful, worth following to the very ends of the age. She was willing to follow. Yeah, I mean, these disciples had opportunity to give to the poor. He says, you can take care of them whenever you want. Problem being, they haven't yet wanted to. There's another thing here, too. Whenever you want, the general rhythm is at the festivals you give to the poor, and Jesus is universalizing charity. Not a moment in time, but a way of life. Right? Yes, this is a rebuke. And he says, you will not always have me. He's about to tell him why. She did what she could. She did what she could. She gave all she had. The, the language recalls just two chapters before the widow's offering. The way Jesus is speaking about this woman anointing him and the way he spoke about the widow giving everything she had is the same. It's actually right to say that aside from Jesus, it's women who are the heroes of this story. In, in, in chapter 5, this bleeding woman in her desperation knew, I just need to get close enough to touch him. Actually, all she had left was, was what she could protect of her public re reputation. She put it on, on the line just to grab a hold of Jesus. And he healed her. In, in chapter 7, we have the Syrophoenician woman, the Syrophoenician woman uh, who is willing to, to, in front of everybody, be, be, be kind of exposed and vulnerable because she knows Jesus is the one worth going to. We just talked about chapter 12 with the widow. Here, chapter 14, the woman anointing Jesus. At chapter 15, it's only women who are at the cross. And at chapter 16, it's women who go to the grave. It's women who find out first that he's been risen, that he's raised from the dead. It's no wonder, it's no wonder that people in the ancient world were attracted to it. They said, that's beautiful. All these other religions want to say women are not even quite human. Just read some of the Stoic philosophers, they'll tell you. And these women are raised up to their proper place as children of God. 
sisters. All are made in the image of God, and the church had been responding to that, and they said, if everyone's made in the image of God, what I've got are not enemies, but brothers and sisters. Some of them have been away from home for too long. Time to bring them home. Maybe she was like that. Maybe she had been away for a long time, and Jesus brought her home. And so Jesus says what she's done, she's poured out perfume on uh, his body beforehand to prepare for his burial completing the thread of what it really means to be the Messiah that he will have to suffer. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. These disciples, it says some of those present here in Mark, actually were told elsewhere it's the disciples. Matthew says it's Judas that was talking. They had wanted to put her in her place. But our beautiful Savior made a place for her. It's beautiful. And still, miraculously, until this moment, we're talking about her. Jesus said it would happen. What another miracle to pay attention to this morning. That we know about this moment, this woman has been given great honor by Jesus. It's beautiful. How did it happen, though? How did, it, how, how did it happen that there were some people around Jesus who thought, you're pretty useful to be. Maybe uh, you'll get rid of those Romans. I have use for that. Some people would say, I, I could use some good teaching, or maybe if you rebuke the teachers of the law, I could use that. I could use that in my life. Why is it there's so many people who think of Jesus as useful, and how is it that she came to think of him as beautiful? There's a few possibilities. In John, she's identified as Mary, brother of Lazarus. Something happens in Mary's heart, the brother of Lazarus. When, when Lazarus had died, and Jesus wasn't there, even though they had called for him, she had been tempted to say, I don't deserve this. We, our family, didn't deserve this. With a with an edge, with a pain. Now she's saying the exact same phrase with an air of humility and love. She went from, I don't deserve this, to, oh my, I don't, I don't deserve this. She has gratitude. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is a miracle when your heart goes from, I don't deserve this, to, I could never deserve this. It's a miracle. Only love can do that. Do you want to change the world? Love your neighbor. Love them. Love your children. L love your friends. Love your, your, help them go from, I don't deserve this, to, I could never have deserved the generosity you're pouring out. She's not the only one who's about to pour it all out, is she? She pours it all out, and then so does Jesus. You can't even begin to count the cost of that. What's happened in her heart is she's gone from thinking I'm of no account to realizing that to Jesus she's of infinite worth. Love has changed her heart. And gratitude. Maybe, maybe it's because in, in Jesus, death has lost its sting. She saw Lazarus raised up. She knows that Jesus is about to absorb the pain of death on behalf of all of humanity. 
It's lost its sting. What does she need with this jar? What does she need with this jar for her own? No. Death had lost its sting for her. She knows that in Jesus there's victory. He's worthy of it all. He takes beauty and turns it, or he takes ashes and he turns it into beauty. In fact, there's a, there's a church father, his name is Peter Abelard, and he says, listen, this is what's happening on the, on the cross. Let's stop thinking about money. Let's stop thinking about transactions. Let's stop thinking about a, atonement in those really rudimentary terms. Let's just realize that this is the most beautiful thing that has ever happened in human history. And how could you ever think about it, look at it without being changed? Peter Abelard says, here's what's happened. People who gaze on the cross and see Jesus there in their place are moved and transformed by the love that's on display. Remember Jesus who defined love, true love, as, as taking care of those who can't take care of you back, as, as loving your enemies, as laying down your life. Jesus who put pure, 100% love on display at the cross. It's beautiful. It's as beautiful as it can be. Maybe it's as simple as this. Maybe we could say, she tasted and saw that the Lord was good. They're at a feast. Why not move with that metaphor? She tasted and saw that he's good. It's not impossible, but I think it's hard to crave a flavor you've never tasted. And she came to taste the goodness of God in Jesus. She couldn't help but want more and more and more of it because of how beautiful it is, how beautiful he is. But here's the other end of the sandwich. The other slice of bread is Judas. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted. Certainly a contrast from chapter 12 when the people were delighted with the teachings of Jesus. Here, these chief priests are delighted that they have a chance to grind another peasant under their thumb. What delights you? Is it Jesus that delights you? Maybe not yet. Maybe it's a process. Maybe it'll take all of eternity. But I know he's patient. I know he delights in us. I find that delightful. Delight in him. They were delighted to hear this. They actually fast forward their scheme. Like, hey, we can't let this opportunity go to waste. Judas is useful to us. Judas is useful to us. Let's put it into play. Right? So they fast forward. They risk the crowds. And they promise to give him money. We find out elsewhere that it's 30 silver coins. In Zechariah and in the law, 30 silver coins is, is what you give to somebody if your animal accidentally kills their servant. Judas is selling Jesus into slavery. Yeah, he became a slave for us that we could be free. Yeah. Yeah, he became poor so that we could be rich. Yeah. I'm telling you, this guy, he turns ashes, he turns it into beauty. It's like this martial arts, right? What, what puts Jesus on the cross? It's the rejection of the people. What's the solution of the rejection of the people? Jesus is on the cross. It's the solution. 
the problem and the solution to come together. Jesus is way ahead of us on this. It's delightful. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I hope you won't mind if I finish the story for Judas. Matthew tells us that when he sees that Jesus was going to be condemned to die, he goes back to the temple, goes back to the chief priests, tries to give the money back. He says, this is wrong. This is all wrong. None of this, none of this should have happened. And they wave him off. Judas is no longer of any use to them. They literally say to him, that's not our problem. <laughs> that's yours. And Judas becomes the antagonist from there on out. I wonder if the problem was still that he didn't find Jesus beautiful enough. People theorize, what's going on here? Uh, Matthew tells us it's greed. He likes to have money in the coffers. He's in charge of it. Some people suggest it's sort of racism or nationalism because he saw that Jesus cleaned out the temple instead of cleaning out the Roman garrison. And he says, well, you're cleaning out the wrong thing here. Get rid of them, right? Jesus is not of use to him after that. Maybe he's saving himself because he sees Jesus going down and he doesn't want to go down with that ship. Some people suggest a sort of sympathetic reading that, that Judas is trying to force Jesus' hand into actually finally acting. But what I think I can see is that he still didn't find Jesus beautiful enough to have gone to Jesus for forgiveness instead of to the chief priest. What if he had gone to Jesus? Bob Dylan used to say, even Jesus would never forgive what you do. In one of his songs, Masters of War, he suggests that, that Judas is unforgivable. I think that's a lie. I think Jesus would have forgiven Judas. And I think that's beautiful. <laughs> I can't help it. That's beautiful. The thought that Judas, the betrayer, could be forgiven on the cross, the same Jesus who says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing, would have said the same on behalf of Judas. I know it. I know it. What if that ticks the meter towards finding Jesus a little bit more beautiful than I did before. It's worth thinking about. It's, it's worth realizing that this Jesus is worthy of all the things I've held back, all the things I've utilized to, to hold on to my own identity, to my own status. He's worth pouring all of that out. He's worth it. I have just one suggestion. Read through Mark, the gospel that I did not always find that beautiful, and just look for signs of beauty. It's only going to take you like 45, 50 minutes, honestly. It's not very long. And just look for the beauty that brought people in off the streets and out of the cold into a home with the people of God. Look for the beauty that, that, that this woman was responding to when she anointed Jesus as king. Look for the beauty that was so inspiring that the women followed him to the cross and then to the grave. Look for that beauty. Know that there's only one source of beauty like that. 
right? Either everything's a miracle or nothing is. This kind of beauty, it's a sign that everything's a miracle and it all emanates from the heart of God. It's all pouring out from this one Jesus who not only defined love but lived it out to the full. He's worthy of it all. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe of you, of the beauty that you put on display, the fact that, that we're of no account, but you find us to be of infinite worth. We pray for eyes to see and ears to hear just how beautiful you are. Let it transform us uh, into your image. We want to be your people. Once we were not a people, but the miracle is you have made us a people into your children. Let us be a conduit for that love, spilling out like a, like a jar of perfume or like your love on the cross. Let us spill out too, drawing people near, bringing them home, helping them to see the beauty that is found only in you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.